awareness and self-awareness is like the worst thing that, it's the best thing for you, but it's the worst thing for you at the beginning. It's like the thing that irritates me most about a lot of my family members, I see in myself. Which we don't like to admit. My biggest complaint that I have with people is about my, about my mother. And then I catch myself doing things like my mother does. <laughs> a lot of times our complaints we have about other people, we have issues with in our own lives. Well, you just are so impatient. And then I catch my... Right. And so it's easy to lose our joy. I was... I was talking. I was talking to Pastor Mike the other day about this and about with relation. You know, because he's been speaking a lot about relationships in in in, uh, in his sermons, and I'm going to reveal it. He's working on me. I'm supposed to be doing a work. We're going to be doing a relationships workshop down the road. Did he? When did he say that? When? Where did he say it? Oh, oh, okay. I better get working on it. <laughs> I didn't know it was announced already. But anyway, um, one, one, one of the things that I, you know, and working with him, I'm telling you about is when we, our problem with relationships is high expectations on other people that we put on other people and that people put on us. And high expectations is a form of idolatry. People don't realize that. When you put someone on a high pedestal and put high expectations on them, you're putting them in a place only Christ deserves to be. High expectations is, just, is demanding perfection. Like, I had a client one time, and boy, she was so mad at her husband. This woman was just infuriated, but she was obsessed with her husband. That sounds really ironic and, op, you know, oxymoron kind of a thing. But the problem was that as I went through her history, when they got married, she put her husband on such a high pedestal. He's going to be my Prince Charming, my knight in shining armor. He's going to do all this and all this and do this for me. And he's going to be perfect, you know, blah, blah. And she put him up on a high pedestal, which was a form of idolatry of perfection. He's going to meet every one of my needs. And then when he didn't do and when someone is in a high pedestal and doesn't meet all your needs, what does that mean? Higher the pedestal? The greater the fall. <laughs> so when he makes a big mistake, which every husband does <laughs> and every wife does, uh, if they're on that high pedestal, that's a greater fall. And so she goes from completely obsessed and just he's the perfect person to he's the biggest scumbag in the world. And she loses her joy in her relationship over this because he did not meet that high expectation. Our biggest problem, not just in relationships but in life, is high expectations that everything's going to go well. And it takes away our joy when it doesn't work out. How many of you have lived, how many of you have lived a perfect life that there's no problems? How many of you have had a perfect week with no problems? How many of this day has been perfect so far? No. And so when we put that high expectation and we don't mean it, it steals our joy away from us. Uh, one of the books I love to read is called uh, uh, The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. And there she is. Now I quit talking about her. Uh, and Peck opens up the book by saying this. 
Life is difficult. And that is one of the great truths of life. And until you realize and accept the fact that life is difficult, you're going to have dysfunction, problems, and a lot of neurosis. Here's the reason why. So many people spend so much energy trying to avoid the thing that life is difficult that they overcompensate in bad behavior. Denial. Blaming other people. They refuse to accept that life is difficult. So they go through all those coping skills that are unhealthy, which leads to dysfunction. You ever know anybody in your life that's just nothing's their fault and they blame everybody else? That's because life is not difficult to them. It, life can't be difficult, so it has to be someone else's fault. Well, society teaches us that everything's supposed to be perfect. We're all supposed to be in a perfect house and we're all supposed to drive. But it's not always that way. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and well, it kind of goes into my premarital counseling when I do with these stupid young people getting married. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I mean, well, they come sit in front of me and you know, we're going to get married. And so we need premarital counseling. I was like, all right, we're going to do premarital counseling. Okay. And like, tell me what, oh, it's going to be, so, it's, it's that high expectation thing. Oh, this is, and I go, well, what are you guys, what's, how are you guys going to argue? Oh, we're not going to, it's going to be great. I found my perfect soulmate. I went, oh, you stupid people. <laughs> I, just, I said, you, you won't get done with the honeymoon without your first argument, you know? And, 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 and I tell people this, that in premarital, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't leave a ceremony without our first argument. <laughs> we, got, we, we got a little uh, tiff at our, uh, uh, the reception. <laughs> but, you know, and I'm going, no. In fact, I poked them to get them to argue in premarital counseling. I said, what is it about the other one that annoys you? And that's usually good to start an argument. And I said, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, let's get this out now. Because usually the response when I do that is, I didn't know that bothered you. Because they're not making a, well, they're trying to get married. I said, when it comes out is after the I do's. And suddenly, now I have a right to tell you that bothers me. You know, and I said, let's get it all out before you say the I do's. Everything you say and everything you do, everything you everything you do bother, you know. And how do you argue? You'd be, just this is off top, but you'd be surprised how many times in premarital counseling I have found out that one of them only wants one kid and one of them wants four kids. And they are like a couple of weeks away from getting married and they haven't discussed that at all. You want to know why the divorce rate's so high? <laughs> no one just, oh, one believes in spanking, one doesn't. <laughs> and suddenly they say, I do, and then suddenly you're supposed to accept this about me, but you never told this about, you know. And, you know, once you live with the person, it changes. <laughs> you just, you, I didn't know you were so messy. I didn't know you were so this way. And so that's why in premarital counseling, I just don't, hey, let's talk about scripture, marriage and scriptures. And stuff. No, I want to know what really makes you guys mad because let's get it solved. And usually they still get married and they do great. It's about let's talk about before the I do's and such. But people. Well, and usually it's everybody bringing a different upbringing into the picture. You're bringing your mama and your daddy into the relationship. Well, you got a big fight on your hands. 
we, my family growing up, you went out to eat like once a quarter, and that was a special treat. Her family went out to eat every day almost. <laughs> we get married, that's a big... No, I didn't say it like that. Mine was more of a... <laughs> well, I was like, no, hey, we're newlyweds. We don't have a lot of money. We can't afford this eating out all the time. Got to work towards that. Well, and we're and, and we're not promised perfection in life, and that's what Peck says in the book. It says, as soon as you realize and accept the fact that life is difficult, life becomes less difficult. Now, it doesn't mean the events change, but you handle them better. You're, you're you know. Your perspective changes because when because most of our angst and our neurosis comes from the our extreme response to life being difficult is trying to fix the fact that life is difficult. We deny, we victimize, we whatever dysfunctional behavior you're thinking of right now is an extreme reaction because the Bible says God says in this what did Jesus say in this world you're gonna have troubles. So Peck get it from him. That's Jesus book. He said, in this life, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of troubles. And he said, but the next verse is what? But take heart, I have overcome the world. And he goes, don't be thinking that you're going to have a clear shot. They hate me. They're going to hate you more. <laughs> you know, you know, what is you know, Peter says, don't be so shocked about the fiery trials that are happening around you. This is a sin. This is a sin-soaked world. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, uh, God, I, my Father, I pray that you not take them out of the world because you can't do that. They're, but help them, protect them from the world. Now, it doesn't mean to, like isolate them from anything bad happening, but protect, protection is about helping you make it through it. Here in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 24, it says, Do you not know that the one who runs in a race and such a let me start over do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things they try to do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable gift Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So what does that have to do with joy? You work for joy. You treat it as a race. There's, there's a prize. Ever see someone like someone really taller than, like with my big brother when we would box and he would put his hand on my head and I'm like you're doing that that's almost kind of the scene what we're do you ever feel like life is the big brother holding your head and you're like 
beat in the air trying to reach him with the air. That's the way life is. But in trying to get to joy, what we're, what we're going to go with now with joy is resiliency. I, as I'm reading and studying, a big part of getting joy for your life is being resilient. And that means kind of like Paul's talking about here. You run in a race and you train yourself and you run to a point of you're going to win. And you've got to train yourself and be, you know, we're getting ready for the Olympics now. Yay. And you see all these people training themselves because, you know, what would you think about someone, you know, <laughs> you know, just I'm going to the Olympics and I'm eating donuts and I'm, you know, smoking and drinking and staying up till four o'clock in the morning. You know, you're not they're not going to probably do well. There's, there's a training that's involved in the race. There's a training involved in the activity. Unless it's golf. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> But boom, boom, psh. Anyway, so um, uh, there's three things. We're going to look at the three P's today about what keeps you from having true joy. And I told you guys two weeks ago about this book. This is a really good book right here. Uh, I will tell you this is not a book about Christianity or spirituality, but it's still a good book. It's about grief and getting joy back. It's called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Uh so what I do is I read it, and then I also, you know, there's a lot of scriptures that back, you know, she should just use scriptures, but I'm, I'll be the one that connects the book with scriptures. Uh, just to reiterate what happened here, she, she's one of the executives at Facebook, and they went on, her and her husband and some friends went on vacation uh, to a resort, and she's falling asleep on the couch, and she tells her husband, this is a really touching story, she goes, last thing I ever told my husband was I'm getting sleepy. Because she's getting sleepy on the couch in the middle of the day, and she takes a nap, and he goes on work. He leaves. She wakes up. They have a dinner they got to get ready to get for. She gets ready, and he hasn't come back yet. She can't get hold of him. She looks for him. No one can find her husband. And he goes, well, what does your husband usually like to do? Well, he likes to work out. So they went to the gymnasium, on the, the gym, the workout center at the resort, and he was on the ground in a pool of blood. He had, and, and he uh, took him to a hospital, and he died. And, of course, her world comes crashing down, and uh, she has to go home and tell her kids because her kids are yay big. And, like, this book is based on what, how she had to find joy back in her life. And it's called Option B, and the reason why it's called Option B is she's dealing with all the things, and, like, there's a father-daughter activity at her daughter's school. And, of course, dad's not around, so uncle's going to take her and she's preparing for it and she suddenly makes the statement it's not supposed to be you it's supposed to be him taking her and he goes well that's option a and it's not available anymore we got to work on option b and that's resiliency and things like that so it's about getting the joy back so and she makes a statement that there's three p's that have kept her from trying to get joy in her life so we're going to look at those what kind of keeps us from getting joy all right the first p is personalization and the way she described it as your husband died he's in a pool of blood he passed out and he had a brain aneurysm she blamed herself for everything if I'd been a better wife I've had made sure he went to the doctor more if I had fed him more healthier dinners if I made him exercise more blah 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 she suddenly starts going into blaming herself for everything so that's personalization of stuff. And it was breaking. Now, her brother-in-law, the uncle guy, we were talking, he's a doctor. 
And he says, you don't understand. A brain aneurysm is a brain aneurysm. It doesn't matter what you ate. It doesn't matter. How said, you can be the healthiest person on the face of the earth, and you can still have a brain aneurysm and die from it. It's not about, oh, you're. Yeah, you, it, it, it's, and there's no test that, oh, well, you're, you're, you're up for a brain aneurysm. You know, it, it just, it's one of those mysteries of medicine that we don't understand why people have them and who get, you could have the most unhealthiest person in the world get one and the healthiest person in the world get one at the same time, and there's no correlation between the two of them. And she knew it, but she did this self-blame. That's what the devil tries to do with. Now, we have enough bad mistakes we make and choices that we make on our own that we deal with the consequences. But there's a lot of things that we blame ourselves that we have no efforts on. You know, well, you know, we work with a lot of parents of special needs children, and they get special needs children, and they immediately go to blaming themselves. What did I do wrong? Fortunately, there are some churches that really preach that as a doctrine of their church that, oh, something bad, what sin do you have in your life that you, you know, oh, you got cancer? What sin do you, how did you upset God to give, you know, and that's a, back to shame, that's a shame thing that everything's my, like I said, now, if you go out and get drunk and you put your arm through a plate glass window and it gets infected and your arm's amputated, yeah, that's based on a decision you made. But you know, the devil usually works on us on things we had no control over. Isn't that strange how he does that? To get you to self-blame yourself? Or this leads to low self-esteem. You're a horrible person. Who would love you? I had a, I think I mentioned that I had a young lady in my uh, office a couple weeks ago, and I'm talking, she's a high schooler, and I, I think I mentioned this. As, um, first intake session, I'm talking to her about, okay, what's your, you know, college, what do you want to do? family because I don't want to get married I go why I said why be just who would even want me and you know that's a personal I said what so could you explain to me what is it about you don't they you don't think they would want you I'm ugly I'm worthless I'm you know and she's a cutter and she goes I'm ruined and you're like I mean, that's a powerful statement right there. The devil whispers in her ear, who would love you? You know, we, she says that she's an extremely shy person, extremely shy. I mean, wow, shy. And I mean, because her whole body language the whole time is like this. And she goes, what man would want this? I'm just, no. And, and I said, well, what about friends at school? No, I don't want to make friends. And because no one would like me. And I said, well, that's self-fulfilling prophecy, <laughs> you know, because you, I don't know, I'm not going to make friends, so I won't have friends. And then she comes in and she doesn't have friends. Personalization is one of those things that the devil uses to keep us down and keep us from joy. Because the devil never gives you good, positive personalizations about yourself, but gives you negative. He, he points out all your faults, and a lot of our faults are true. But he, we, person, we define ourselves. You know, I've, you know I've, you've heard me say that before. So many of us, the personalization is not about just being realistic. Hey, I got this weakness. It's about I define myself by my weakness. I am a 
slob. I, you know, when I do marriage counseling, my biggest thing is to get away from personalizations. We're not always good about it, but hey, you're a lazy pig. That's a personalization. Instead of saying, you know what you did was really lazy. <laughs> you know, you focus on the action, not the person. You're just an inconsiderate, horrible human being. Instead said, you know, when you didn't call me and tell me about that, that was very inconsiderate. You focus on the action, not the person. You know, exactly. but we, we define when we tell our children, you're just a no good whatever. Well, you call a boy a dog long enough, he starts acting like a dog. When we define people, we do that. So Satan, that's Satan's the author of that to where he says, not only why would other people love you, why would God love you? And if he gets you to base your self-worth on all this, it makes perfectly good sense why joy is a hard thing to get at because why would I have joy? Because it's not my joy, it's God's joy that he gives me. And so I am unworthy of God's joy. Well, we, yeah, we are unworthy of God's joy, but it's a, grace, it's a gift, it's mercy, it's grace that he gives us. Why would God love me? And in fact, I've had people in my office that have a hard time with the Christian story. They say, well, I understand Christ died for everybody, but why would he die for me? And I said, well, you're, you're right. He did, <laughs> though. <laughs> the truth is, he, yeah, we don't deserve, you know, we aren't worthy of it, but we, he loves us that much. Love overcomes worth. And so anybody got any thoughts and ideas about this personification or personalization? Anything that you can give examples of or ideas of or questions? You were about to say something, Chris, weren't you? I know when you're about to say something, you got that face. To act like it, to act so low self-esteem. But that's the trick of the devil. That's what he wants you to do. It takes resiliency. Well, I mean, you model it to them. I'm, I'm going to give you kind of the roundabout answer because this is, it needs to be strategic. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the first thing we want to do is tell people, you're not, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. Well, one, they don't take that because you're just saying that to make me feel better. You're doing that to make me happy. There's a difference between happy and joyfulness, you know. So what you do is you actually go into why they think that about themselves. So, you know, with this girl, let me, let me just use this girl. says, okay, so tell me, what, what is it about yourself you don't like? Well, I'm overweight. I'm shy. I cut myself. And there's, some re there's reality to those things. 
And I said, yeah, okay. So, and I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I saw her yesterday, in fact. Well, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying this is how I do it. And I'm not the, I'm not the be all perfect all. Well, it's not. Here's, here's the issue. I saw this girl yesterday. She is a little overweight. She is a cutter. She is shy. <laughs> the things she said and some truth. Now, my job is to get her to where she doesn't define herself by those things. I'm old. I'm a little overweight. I got gray hair. Those are realistic things. I just can't define myself by those things. I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> I will admit it, but I'm laughing. I, I don't define myself by that. Now, that doesn't make them, okay, I'm just going to live in that joy of being a procrastinator. I need to work on that. But the price, okay, I asked one question, opinion by you. <laughs> Next session, your stuff. Anyway, though, no, I'm joking. But so we, we deal with that, and, and, you, and you, you're not defined by those things. Now, there are some things that are unrealistic. She goes, oh, I'm just impossible to love. No, that's not true. You're my, and, I, and how I did that, she goes, I'm just impossible to love. I said, who's out there in the waiting room? She goes, my mom. Why'd she bring you? Because I'm mess up. No. Why did she bring you? Because she wants to see me better. Why does she want to see you better? Because she loves me. Oh, so you're lovable. And then we deal with all that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this sounds very callous on my part, but she did talk about her. She's not obese, but she is a little, you know, of course, a 14-year-old girl. That's the world, you know, my, her body image and stuff. I said, okay, a little overweight. Who controls that? I do. She goes, in fact, I've lost about five pounds. Wow. So you're, so you're running the race. You're being resilient for that. I mean, it sounds bad. Well, Clayton, you're not supposed to tell her. I didn't tell her. She said, you say you're overweight. So we're, what are we going to do about it? Do you have the power to do that? Yeah. Why do you want to do that? Because I want to be getting better shape. So you do think you can love yourself enough to lose that weight. Now, the assignment I gave her yesterday, she's going to go home and she's going to write all the positive things about herself. And I said, if you have trouble, go to your mom and dad, go to your best friend. If you, you know, she's got one friend. And I said, go to these people and ask them what do they see in you that's positive. And what I have her going to do, she's going to print them out and she's going to put them on her mirror in her bathroom and she's going to read it every day. And you're going to add the word, I am kind. I am, this girl's really smart, by the, I mean, super brainy smart. I said, I am, I, I, I said, in these four walls, you're allowed to brag on yourself. Forget the humility and not, I said, I want you to brag on yourself. What, what are you good at? What are you good at? And I want you to put the words I am in front of all those things. And so, you know, God made you that way because he wanted to. Now, this, this is going to be, pro, this is not an overnight thing. That one of the things that needed, in, if you're dealing with someone like this, is patience. Because understand, you're going up against a powerful devil. Because the devil, like this girl, I only see her one hour a week. <laughs> the devil's got her every day, whispering in her ear. <laughs> so this is going to be a process. But we're going to work on this to where she, now I will say this, I, this is my third week to see her. She's finally sitting back on my couch with her back against the cushion. 
because every other day she was like this. And I actually got her to smile yesterday, which I consider that a great victory. Told her a joke. <laughs> and, you know, and so it's, it's, it's a long process because the devil's still on her shoulder whispering all those same things. The devil always takes a nugget of truth and surrounds it with lies. That's what makes his deception powerful. He might say, you know, you did that one time, which might be the truth. But then he adds the lie to say, God can never love you because of that. Do you see where nugget of truth surrounded by a, a falsehood? That's, if it's a complete falsehood, it's not as powerful because you can defeat that. He takes the nugget of truth and builds the lie on it, which makes it more believable. Does that make sense to everybody? We are screw-ups, in your words. Every, we're all screw-ups. I wish Paul had said that in Scripture. It would have been more real. Hey, we all, I daily screw up, you know. Oh, no, someone's, <laughs> what? Everybody does. I mean. Well, and that's, and that's what I call, that's why I call the self-awareness. Self-awareness is the ultimate, you know, we got that on top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, self-awareness. It's the greatest thing, but the journey to get there, it is a rough journey to be. But what about that one person I really don't like? I don't care. But it's just the way it is. But they're a jerk. Yeah, but you don't they don't vote like I do. Unforgiveness? Well... Mm-hmm. Well, let, let, let me give this. Let's, let's bring it back to the top of the personalization. The first person a lot of times you have to forgive is yourself. I actually see more problem with people forgiving themselves over something than forgiving someone else. And I'm telling, and and I agree, and I go, but I, I take it for about that's the same effect of forgiving yourself for stuff you've done, and other things, or forgiving yourself for not being perfect. You know, it's it may not mean you didn't rob a bank or something, but I mean about forgiving yourself for not being per, you know, forgiving yourself for not having it all. You know, these you know the mommy shaming. Oh my goodness, you, you got a job and you got kids and you're not doing everything perfect. You know, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm dealing with a mother right now. Not my mother, but a mother. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. A client who is a who you talk about the self guilt. Every problem that her kid has is a reflection of her and her being a bad mom. If I was a better mom, my kids wouldn't have to have these problems. And I keep going. I got a window in my office. I said, look out that window. How many parents out there have kids who don't have at least one problem? So then everybody's messed up. So and my, my greatest line to this, if your kids having problems means you're a bad parent, then God is the worst father that has ever lived. <laughs> if, if your kids having problems is a sign of bad parenting or being a bad parent, yeah, a reflection of you being a bad parent, then God is the worst father who has ever been because every one of his kids got problems. I, now you want to get me on my anger soapbox? Is this just this guilt? No, I'm, I'm going to say shame, not guilt. Shame is shame thing. Oh, your kid did that. Your kid. I mean, kids are numbskulls. Kids, they're going to make mistakes. Now, Granted, there are some parents who make mistakes that that affects their kids and the kids, you know, model. I understand that. But her son's got some issues that are not her fault. It's just the way he was born. He's born with some certain things. What did I do wrong? Why is God punished? I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad thing. And I'm going, then God's bad. You know, there are some things your kids just decide to do because they decide to do it. You know? And so... This personification keeps us from joy because, once again, life is difficult. Your kids are going to be disobedient from time to time. Now, the key is to try to get it as low as possible, but they're going to be rebellious. They're going to be the best. I've seen kids come from families where the parents were numbskulls and horrible, and they came out okay. I've seen kids come from families where the parents were, I mean, as good as parents as you could ever see, and the kids came out numbskulls. I know, it's, it, yeah, it wasn't my kid either. But the personification, we take on, and the devil wants to, get, oh my goodness, Chris, you're a horrible father. Oh, Chris, how, your kid made that decision. Oh my goodness. You know, you can give them all the tools the healthy tools in the world to live life and they still make the wrong decision. That's being human. So this personification steals our joy away from us. And we got to remember that. The second P is pervasiveness. Now this lady that wrote the book, she said, my husband died. I was blaming myself and the ramifications of losing your husband is you know, the stress and I thought it was going to affect everything in. Now, the first two weeks it does. You lose someone, I mean, it feels, you know, it's, but we're talking beyond the initial shock of the loss. My kids are going to grow up basket cases and need psychology, you know, counseling for the rest of their lives. I'm going to lose my job because of this. I'm going to, did you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be alone, you know, she was like in her 30s when this happened, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be 70 years old and never have anybody alone and by myself and still, you know, you think it's, you think one thing happens is going to affect every area of your life, and the devil comes in that way too, to think, 
it, it does create distraction and things. And she said one of the things that helped her through this is about a month later, she looked out in her front yard and her kids were playing with their neighbor friend kids. And I said, they're laughing. I didn't think they'd ever laugh again. Doesn't mean that they're not still sad. Her daughter was still coming in and crying and things like from time. But life, they got to go back to school. You know, the, the father-daughter dance or whatever that was, it had to still have to go on. And she's going, I just, she thought she was going to lose her job. And she works for Mark Zuckerberg, the main guy at Facebook. And he said, he said, I'm taking care of your funeral. I'm taking care of the funeral. I'm making all the arrangements. You take as much time off as you can to deal, you know, help your family deal with this. And you got a job when you come back. And I was like, she's really high up in Facebook. <laughs> and so like she works with Mark Zuckerberg every day. He said, I'll take care of and so periodically she started looking yes it affects but it's not devastating to every part of my life it wasn't fatal, it wasn't fatal. It wasn't fatal. and the pervasiveness is like oh my goodness i still have to go to the grocery store i still have to do this i still have to plan a vacation next year with my kids blah, 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 and things the devil makes it think that Back in 1999, you did this, and it's going to affect every aspect of your life. And it, that's, that's where I get angry with churches, to where something bad happens. Oh, well, you know, back in 99, you did that, so that's why God's doing this today. You know, the preacher that, when I, when I pastored the church, and I went to visit the lady in the hospital, and she just starts, I pray for her, and she just starts crying, and starts crying, and crying, and crying. And she had health issues that she always had, and ended up dying from it, in fact. And I go, you know, what's wrong? She said, well, the last pastor told me that he prayed for me. And the reason I didn't get healing is because I got some hidden sin that I don't know about. I wanted to go find that pastor and beat the living love out of him. <laughs> because basically, it was pride on his. Hey, I prayed for you. You should be healed. That's spiritual pride and spiritual abuse, by the way. I'll teach on that some other time. <laughs> so I, I, you want to get me bad. I mean, this woman had tears coming down in her eyes. She had a genetic illness. And she goes, I've prayed forgiveness for every sin I've ever could think of. I can't think of any more sin. He's told me to keep thinking because there's some hidden one that I haven't repented of. That is, that is from the pit of hell right there. Well, problem is, he was a, he was a very demonstrative personality, and she was a very uh, timid person. And people, well, if the pastor says it, it has to be true. If I see that guy now, I want to hit. I I come across him every now and then, and I forgiveness. <laughs> I know, I know, but I but. Yes, I do. But the problem is, I was her shepherd at that point, and I'm wanting to protect my sheep. And well, and the the, the most and it's in, the most powerful, but even one more powerful said, "Hey, this man was born blind. Who did the sin, Lord? Him or his parents?" And Jesus said, adding Clayton version of Clayton. Neither one, idiots. <laughs> said, this is done because it's the world, and but I'm going to show my glory through this. I'm going to heal him. Boom. You know? But that's from the pit of hell to where pervasiveness. And this woman grew up in... This woman was not this hidden, sin-ridden woman that, like, 
former prostitute and drug addict and things. She was just a dear, sweet little old lady that had grown up in church, you know, all her life. And, oh, no, you got some hidden sin because that's the only way God deals with you. Pervasiveness. Maybe she did have a hidden sin in her life, but she was not in the hospital because of that. Ugh. Anyway, but that keeps us. From, notice how it kept her from joy. She did not. Her joy was robbed because of pervasiveness. It hits every aspect of my life, you know, to where, you know, some people who get a divorce. Oh, what's it going to do with my kids? If you love your kids, your kids will make it through it and you give them to the Lord. You know, what's going to happen? The last P, and I want to get this really quick, is permanence. That the, that the aftershock of that thing is going to last forever. Now, you put your arm through the plate glass window, it gets affected, and it's amputated while you're drunk. Yeah, that kind of lasts forever. <laughs> your arm's not going to grow back. But, you know, we're talking more psychological, emotional things to where this woman said, it's been several years now, I still miss my husband. I still grieve for him. I still love him to a certain degree. But what did you say? Life has gone on. My kids are growing up. They're growing up healthy. We have to, we, we cry every now. We miss them. I mean, you're not going to just, oh, who was he again? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're better off with that. You know, no, we miss him. But we can still have happiness. Our, we're not defined. Our, our, our feet, here's the thing. The one, the person, the personification is my person's not defined by this event. Pervasiveness is my entire life is not defined by this. The permanence, my future is not defined by this as well. See, there's, you don't want it to define you. She goes, I had to go on with life. Someday I may get married again. Does not mean I love my husband less, my first husband less. It's just... And he said he probably would want me to be happy and joyful and, and, and go on with life. You know? No, yes. <laughs> now, reverse that. She dies. You want to stay single the rest of your life. But you meet somebody. I mean, we, we've talked about it. We've even picked out the people we want each other to marry. <laughs> We do that job. We do that job. We do every. We do this. At, see, we, you know, if if I died, I think you would marry so and so. That'd be a good one. And I, you know, of course, it's a person with completely nuts. Now, no, I'm just, no, it just. But I mean, I know if I died, I would want her to do the proper mourning period. Can't bring a day to the funeral. I think that'd be inappropriate. <laughs> here's my everyone. Here's my date. <laughs> but I mean, down the road. That's a, yeah, yeah. No, down the road, if she meets a good Christian guy who's kind. To, well, our kids are grown. But if I, if our kids, if he's be a great stepdad to the kids, or good, I'm in heaven. I'm in the presence of the Lord. She wants to get married. She get married. Because that's my mom said. You, <laughs> my mom said, you would really want faith to get remarried? I said, I don't care. She was then upset. She said, I'm in heaven. <laughs> what, do, what do I care? You know, I'll just. But that makes me joyful. If she's joyful down here, that makes me happy in heaven. Now I'm hoping she's like, Clyde really stuck as a husband. This one's there. That would kind of probably upset me. But I mean, I should have, I should have, 
I should have killed them off sooner. <laughs> I missed out on some quality years here. But no, see what I'm saying? But I mean, it's, it's, it, it, life goes on and, and, and it's not fatal. That goes back to the, the it's not fatal it's, if you give it to the Lord. Now, if we, the temptation Satan wants you to do by taking your joy is that it becomes fatal. It becomes pervasive. It becomes personal to you. So you would lose. He, he wants to separate you from joy from God. And resiliency. Now, we, I gave you the three Ps this week. Next week, we get into the resiliency. It's okay, Clayton. Those are the three things I got to avoid. What is this resiliency and how do we do it? Next week is when we look into that. Any questions or comments? All right, so quit living by them three Ps. Quit living by them three Ps. Or allowing the three Ps to affect you negatively. All right? Now, change what you can change. I'm not going to. Personalization, pervasiveness, permanence. Permanence. My person, my whole world, my future. How about that? My person, my whole world, my future. Is that a better way to remember them? But how do we fight the three Ps? By resiliency. And we're going to study that next week. Jesus is part of our resiliency. Just always give the spiritual answer, man. All right. So how does Jesus help us with it? (laughs) Well, maybe we can look into that a little bit. All right. Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I just pray that your word says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we just want to live. It's not our joy. It's your joy that you give us. And it overcomes happiness. It overcomes sadness. And Lord, life is difficult. You You told us that. You warned us that. And you're realistic and truthful to us. But I give great praise because you said we're going to have troubles. But we take heart because you've overcome the world and its troubles. And that's what we're going to learn about resiliency. Lord, help us throughout this next week in your precious name. Amen.